Hey, what is up, everybody? This is Rob Rivera. And this is Rob Rucha. And you're listening to the Robcast Podcast. Podcast. It's the Robcast Podcast Season 2, Episode Number 7. And this episode is what? What are we doing? We're going to talk about our top five favorite debut albums, like first album they ever released. And this is like commercial label release, not first like demo or something. Yes, like. it's a national release. Okay, so first national, national or international. On an actual yeah. label, not just a local release. Okay. And so we've got to kind of establish maybe a little ground rule thing where we just give ourselves five minutes per album. Yeah, let's see if we can do that. Talk about why it is, you know, one of your top five and what it is about that, if there's specific songs or maybe something like that. Okay. Um, and I'm going to set my little timer thing here. And do you want to do your five or do you want to go back and forth back one and, forth. and one? You okay. one and one, you do two, I do two, three. Okay. You start. Hang on. Five minutes. And you want me to start? Yes. All right. What's your number five, Rob? My number five would be the first Nine Inch Nails record, Pretty Hate Machine. That with uh, Head Like a Hole? That's got Head Like a Hole. It's got a song called Something I Can Never Have. It's got, um, God, I can't remember all the damn names on the song, of, of the songs, but I know every one of them like it was you know, ingrained in my blood. Um, listening to that album also was, you know, kind of a mind changer for production um it was industrial music at the time when you know it was still kind of underground it didn't really make its way into the mainstream ministry was was right there at the same time um one of the dudes from filter was involved in nine inch nails early on i think richard patrick was was something with, to do with that because that similar kind of vibe filter had that nine inch nails kind of pioneered um the, the Trent Reznor is a, is an innovator and a genius when it comes to synthesizers and analog, you know, manipulation of oh, sound. Yeah. Oh my god. The distortion on drums, the distortion on vocals, the things that people want and are plug-in based now were things he was doing with hardware. And that record really proved it. It had a sound that um, you know, as a, as a musician, it made me feel like I was there, you know, like I I I kind of heard the world they were in making that record yeah. and that's uh, several records in my collection are like that when you listen to them like what you were just saying about listening to merciful fate with headphones yeah. you know you get to hear those little details those things that no one's going to hear in the big speaker or you're not going to hear when you're driving because the road noise or whatever mm -hmm. so there was a trip that my high school band took down to tennessee to play our first out-of-state show awesome. we were playing this place i forgot freaking the name of it but it was somewhere on church street in nashville did you guys cover a nine inch nails song no but oh, okay. but i had my my walkman with my okay. cassette of uh pretty hate machine on tvt that was the label they were they were yeah, the seven, first band that seven us label too. tvt got uh, and had nothing signed. face i think was on there yeah nothing face was on tvt yeah, as well but yeah. tvt before they signed nine inch nails was just a television theme song company they had put out a CD of television themes like the Sanford and Son theme and like mm -hmm. those kinds of things, good times. But then they signed this industrial band called Nine Inch Nails and they made that record. And it was produced by this guy Flood, who was part of the Nine Inch Nails thing at the time. And the album had such a, I don't know, a personal kind of sound. When you listen to it in headphones, it kind of made you escape the world you were in. Mm -hmm. You know, like I, we were in this van riding for eight hours down to Nashville and I listened to that record on repeat like three times, you know, wow. just listening to it and dissecting it and learning what, what was coming next, you know, because sequencing was a big deal back then. Like, not, yes, you know, like, and, and having the songs trail into each other with like these interludes that were all electronic and really trippy, but almost conceptual in a way, like not a concept record, but it was. And you kind of had that feeling that, you know, this wasn't going to be the only thing this band ever did. And sure enough, man, what a career. And, Andy, know? our first guitar player at Nine Point, is a massive Nine Inch Nails Trent, fan. Trent Reznor fan. Yeah. And on the, on the To The Pain record, the song rendition it's is got inspired. That loop thing at the yeah, beginning. Yeah, because it's and, got, mm -hmm. it's, those are electric, I didn't play those drums. Those are, no, I know. Those are all program drums that he put together. He was definitely 
wanting to go more into that world. Well, and that's the thing that what's weird is, you know, Nine Inch Nails isn't really a touring band anymore. They don't do that much. They do maybe like a sound wave or they'll do like a big, you know, yeah. arena, like an O2, like a arena. Or they'll do a or, festival. Yeah, yeah, like big festivals in London or whatever. Um, but when you look at what he's done now, he and this other guy, Atticus Ross, they scored the whole Facebook movie, the social network movie. Really? They scored, uh, God, several movies since then. I did not know and that. And so he's now in the movie scoring, you know, like, and I can hear it in those movies, like when I listen to the soundtracks. And it's like, wow, Trent Reznor's no longer, you know, doing just a Nine Inch Nails thing. He's, you know, really expanded himself into being more creative. He's got a studio that is where the Sharon Tate murder happened. Like, and mm-hmm. it's, you know, got the word die pig written on the wall. And like, there's some creepy stuff going on in his, in his mind. And you hear it through every one of his albums. And they've consistently put out great albums with videos that are really catchy and cool. They have really experienced, you know, doing, um, you know, enhanced bonus material with all their releases. So it really helped shape the way the industry did that too. And without them, I don't think it would have been, you know, done as easily. And then they only had one album on TVT, and after that, they blew up. Like, you know. Yeah. Oh, that's me. Oh, shut up, Rob. You gotta stop. But talking. anyway, that is a great number five. Mm-hmm. Great number five. And I mean, the career that they've had since then. I mean, it's, yeah, I it's, mean, every album is platinum or multi-platinum. Yeah, they they open doors to a, a Marilyn Manson wouldn't exist without Nine Inch Nails. No, because he signed them. He, yeah, he discovered them. Yeah, what like, was the label? He had nothing. That was nothing records. Nothing, nothing yeah, records. that's how he releases almost all his stuff independently. Yeah. It's under Interscope, but it's his imprint because of how big he is. It's like Dr. Dre Aftermath. Yeah, it's Interscope, but it's Dr. Dre. Yeah, you know, like yeah. he's doing what most bands wish they could do: own all their shit and run a label to find new things. That'd be amazing. <laughs> so, um, what is your number five? My number five is Down, the record called Nola. Um, that was when that came out. Those songs were in the making for five years. Like they had written all those songs, but you know, given Pantera's schedule and and Coc schedule, I Hate God's schedule. And Crowbar schedule. That's who was in the band. All right, that the was guys. Phil Anselmo, right? Yeah, Phil Anselmo. Yeah. With he had, uh, um, I love Pepper first Keenan. Record, man. Yeah, Pepper Keenan on guitar. Uh, Kirk, I can't say was last. Weinstein. Weinstein is a guitar player, and Crowbar, and singer. He all then Todd Strange, I believe, was the name of the bass player. Mm-hmm. Was in Crowbar, and then you got Phil Anselmo. Yeah. Oh, and you had Jimmy Bauer. On drums from I Hate God, who's actually a guitar player in I Hate God, plays drums in and Down, who's actually still the drummer, I believe, if when Down does stuff. Yeah. And Rex Brown has been in Down for a little while. Yeah. I mean, he was. He's not there anymore. I'm not sure who the new bassist is, but I know they got a new new bassist. But um, yeah, that record when I first heard it, and the song, the first song, uh, Temptations Wings, and I was like, man, it just it sounded. They, I think they said. The record was done in 28 days. They recorded it all live, I think, in a barn. That sounds familiar. We did X in 26 days. Yeah, they did it in a barn in New Orleans. I think uh, Phil Simmons got a studio out there in New Orleans. Oh, yeah. That he does. He records all his albums in this barn. I wish I had one there. I wish I had a barn. I just wanted to have, like, you know, that bayou dark vibe of New Orleans. I know, but I want a barn with a studio in there. I want a barn. So, so badly. <laughs> It'd be my dream to have the a place barn. behind my house that I have a studio at and rehearsal and everything. But, um, yeah, that, that whole record and, and uh, Stone the Crow, when I heard that song. Oh, yeah. It's like one of the, it's like almost like a ballad, but mm-hmm. it's not. It just has. This sludgy, that whole record's got this sludgy bayou. They took it, like Black Sabbath, and they definitely took a lot of Black Sabbath. Well, and also Southern Trend Kill kind of vibe, you know? Yeah, like that, that too. That's got that grungy. They have of. a song on there. I can't remember the name of the song, but it has a Planet Caravan. Uh, it's only got congas and no drums. It's like this really moody song. Isn't that on the Pantera record? 
Yeah, there was a as a, as a cover of Black Sabbath yeah. Planet Caravan, but it's got that vibe yeah, yeah. on the on the down record. And oh I was yeah, like, I was like, oh man, this sounds so cool. And I loved bands that did that because even though it was a moody track, it still sounded heavy to me. That's how Sabbath kind of paved the way. Man. Yeah, they sell, even though they were playing all clean stuff, it mm-hmm. sounded evil. It sounded moody, and and that song is super super cool. And and yeah, that record, man. I wish I could. I never saw Down Live, unfortunately. I, every other band that I mentioned in my top, I have seen live, but I have not seen Down ever that I can remember. You know, even a festival. I think or anything. I saw them out and. LA because there was a guy when we were making our record that we connected with uh it was a drum doctor guy that brought in like cymbals and drums and stuff and he was uh friends with the guys in down and they had the rehearsal spot in Orange County yeah and so or not Orange County but off of Sunset in Orange in in Hollywood and so we got to see them play it was at the Rainbow was down rehearsing no but they they had a rehearsal spot there Oh, okay. It was just the same environment. So when this guy came, he was like, "Yeah, he's like, I'm going to the Rainbow to see Down," and we're like, "Oh, let's go." And it was like, "So you saw him?" Yeah, at the at the Rainbow. And where where they play outside? Um, God, I can't remember. No, it was indoors. The Rainbow? There's nowhere to put a stage. Not the Rainbow, in. the Roxy. Sorry, the Roxy. Okay, yes, at the it's Roxy. Like, what? Sorry. No, the Rainbow's next to the Roxy. Yes. Yeah, I like playing the Roxy. It was a blur because of drinks called Mind Erasers. There was a drink called Mind Eraser? Yeah, you never had one of those? No, fuck no. I don't want that. Okay. <laughs> I'll tell you a story after you're done. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, that, I mean, that, that I don't know, that record, I, I, I had that on cassette. Okay. And on my cassette player, going to work every day, going to Kmart, getting on that bus, and listening to that record at full volume with people around me looking at me like, <laughs> what, is it loud enough? You know, I, I when I listen to stuff on my earbuds, I listen to it loud. And everybody I, hears it. Yeah, everybody hears it. I don't care if they do or they don't. Yeah. But yeah, it's a, a fantastic album. The production, it just sounded like it was, they just said, they hit record and went for it. Mm-hmm. You know, that's what it sounds like. It doesn't sound edited. It sounds very, very live. So, and Phil Anselmo's vocals sound ridiculous on that album. Oh and, my God, yeah. Yeah, he's a, I'm fantastic form, you know, on that record. But yeah, that's my number five. That's number five. Damn. So my fourth of five, number four, would be Corn's uh, first record. Fantastic record. Um, again, one of those moments where you hear something you've never heard before. Um, it's the 25th anniversary of that record this year. I wonder if they should do another tour. Oh, my God. Uh, they've already done one. Yeah. I think I did a 20th <clears throat> anniversary. Well, it's five more years. Do it again. Um, but they have you know, stood the test of time. Uh, become a, a household name for multiple generations of, of listeners. You know, like my my age group, you know, people that were born, you know, in in your age group. I mean, everybody knows corn. You guys have that nightly joke sometimes where you're like, if anybody doesn't know who we are, we are corn. And I play that. And everybody laughs. And I mean, I've got several recordings of that thing to the point where I'm like, I'm glad you don't do it anymore so you can bring it back at some point. But if you kept doing it, people would probably say, okay, this is enough because yeah. at some point maybe corn won't be as relevant, but just now they released an album. What? A couple of weeks ago. Amazing. Oh my God. Sick. Ray's amazing. Sick. On it, man, that drumming Sick. is Sick. so good. And Chris Collier, the, the engineer has got like some steam behind him now, man. I mean, there's lots of records that have come out in the last two years that that guy's name strapped. Where to. did they do it? Uh, I don't know, but I know Chris has been their guy. And Ray and Chris go way back, and and almost I think every band that Ray's been in recently has been Chris Collier on, on engineering, and and God just I wonder if he did the Army of Anyone record, the first, just that first album, of course, Blind. I mean, Jesus, I saw that on MTV. And I, I heard actually, it. No, 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 no. Wait, wait. No, I am sorry. I saw Corn live before I heard the song. Yeah, I saw them open up for Marilyn Manson and Danzig. Oh, wow. And the Sunrise Musical Theater in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. Okay. And one thing I remember is Jonathan did not talk at all. No. <laughs> not well, talk I mean, to the crowd. Was, at that point, he was it was he was still an awkward, you know, geek, you yeah. know, like totally outcast. And that the, the whole personification that people thought was made up wasn't made up. I no, mean, it was his real life. Yeah, it was. And, I mean, to, to think about it that way, it's almost like a... a, a 
superhero, like underdog story, you know, like in a way, like you come from something that no one would have ever thought that dorky guy would have been as influential as he mm-hmm. has become to the point where they had, you know, the, the, the tours they did all had themes. They created the family values thing. They created like kind of like what Disturbed did with the music as a weapon thing or Ozzy did with Ozfest. You know, it's like a, a never ending like musical festival based on one band's creation. You know, and that first album from them with, you know, the engineering on it. And I think what that was Ross Robinson and I think Brendan O'Brien mixed it. Mm-hmm. It's just the, it was like a freaking super group of, of production on top of this band that nobody had heard of. And they went from nobody had heard of them to tons of kids on a cage on stage, you know, with their whole like follow the leader tour thing and like their family values vibe mm-hmm. bringing limp biscuit out and and bringing other bands out into the uh, into the people's ears they were one of those bands that took bands under their wing and brought them out you know like to to from zero it was you know kind of a a way of looking at what production should be mm-hmm. their stage shows were phenomenal even on that first tour you know just <clears throat> going into you know an arena to see a band that their first album you know like that's crazy you know like how did that happen that is awesome you know like and that was the era too like back then when bands could hit just like a m&m could where they were selling almost shipping platinum you know a million the first week (sighs) like follow the leader shipped platinum you know that's after just life is peachy which was the second album (laughs) i think it sold four times platinum oh yeah but each record they put out consistently sells that first record is still growing because as people discover them now, they find out they where go they back. came from, they go back. Yeah, the catalog. That thing is when I, and I, like I said, I went to that show that day. It was a Saturday night. Mm-hmm. And then after that, I came home, watched Headbangers Ball, and then Blind was, was playing. And then I was able to really hear it. They were the first band, so the sound wasn't, I, I felt the energy, but I couldn't really make out some things. Yep. But when I saw it at night, on, and Handbangers Ball, I was like, holy, cr- what is this? Well, drop tuned. And, and then, then, then the the boom, the 808. Yes. And, and then they ended the do, 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 yeah. with a little hip hop. A little Cypress Hill kind of little Cypress Hill thing. Yeah. It's like, yeah, that that's killer record, man. It was, yeah, definitely one of those life-changing moments. Yeah. And that's my time. That's your time. All right. My number four. All right. From the band Merciful Fate, uh, mm. their album Melissa, which I actually listened to on the way up here today. Yeah, I saw your live video. I listened to that record, and I was like, man, this... Because I wanted to make sure. I hadn't heard it in a while, so let me listen to it. And I sang along the whole thing. And funny thing is, that, uh, I mean, it's not funny, but it's funny to me. Most of the lyrical content on the album all deals with the occult. You know, it's all about that world. And I never paid attention to the, you know, never paid attention to the lyrics. I wasn't ever, I didn't care what they sang about. Right. If I liked the music. That, to me, at that time, that's what I felt. Um, that first song, my favorite song is Evil by them. And Satan's Fall are t- two of the best songs. Satan's Fall is like a, almost an eight-minute, nine-minute song. Super long song. And I listened to that on the way up, and I was remembering all the changes. Like, oh, my God, there's like so much stuff going on. And then uh, Metallica are massive fans of Merciful Fate. Fate. On the Garage Days, the second one that they did. Revisited? Revisited. Mm-hmm. They have a, a song called Merciful Fate, and it's five Merciful Fate songs. It's a medley. And I was like, that was, that was cool because not only that I love Metallica, but the Metallica also loved one of my favorite bands. And uh, I can't remember how I discovered them, but I did play the vinyl. At the house, and I, I I listened to a lot of music back then on headphones. That's how I got the biggest impact because I got to hear everything, every little thing the nuances, that was, the nuances, yeah. every little thing that was in. I wanted to always hear it with headphones. Hearing it loud, it was kind of it's distorting. I can't really you can appreciate it because it has an energy behind it. But then hearing everything, I can hear like some some really weird things happening on that record, like especially drum wise and. The drummer, uh, I think his name is Tim Hansen, and uh, fantastic drummer. No one really ever talked about him. And Lars actually got on stage and played with them somewhere. 
wow. at some point. There's got to be a there's got to be a YouTube video of that somewhere. But um, yeah, fantastic record, King Diamond. I mean, I, I like I said, I don't I don't follow the occult or nothing like that. But I don't care what I, say, I don't care what people believe. You know, I, that's not for me to judge. Right. But he definitely is very creative in that world. Like even even the post he does today it says Mexico kid like Mexico City the darkness returns you know or stuff like that you know he like or here's or he's like hear the sounds of the grave when you come to see like and I, he always adds these little things that right. kind of like you know like kind of flows with what they're about even with King Diamond with his solo band but yeah and he kind of follows that I think he's still like his it's just his brain and his like some of these records are concept albums sure like, man like talking about a witch or something it's like it's insane no, those are those are some of the best you know ways to write a record too and you have that theme and and you stick to it and if your band is kind of going into that darkness world you know of, and it's, it's also good for, it's all also good for production sure like there's so many ideas that come from that genre his show has like this castle Mm-hmm. And there's stairs and all this like and they do that like in Europe. I don't know if he brings that show to the States, he may. But I mean I'm it's big production. And, well and they're playing the areas where that's, you know, doable. Mm-hmm. It's like if you were doing a festival, you don't kind of you don't bring that kind of production to a festival. Yeah. I mean I, who brings a castle to a festival show? Yeah. I, I, I think they do though. I'm I think they saying. do. But uh um, <clears throat> um I saw them in uh Fort Lauderdale at Revolution. It was called the Chili Pepper. Yeah. And this is when they made their comeback. They had uh, King Diamond had put out like three or four records, and then he decided to do a new Merciful Fate album. Most of the original members were there. At least the two guitar players were there, which is very important on the writing side. Well, sure. And uh, um, But, man, they sounded so cool. Like It's like, man, I'm watching Merciful Fate live. I couldn't believe it. Like That was actually happening. And another cool thing, too, about that is when I went to the OzFest in Texas that Metallica headlined in Dallas, and... King Diamond lives in Dallas. Ah, he came so out. he came out on stage with Metallica. It did that Merciful Fate medley, and oh, I was oh. standing next to Scott Ian, singing all the words to those songs because I know he loves Merciful Fate too. And I was just like in heaven. So, oh my God, King Diamond's playing with Metallica, and I'm side stage. And you're watching it next to Scott Ian. Next to Scott Ian, like a- a- everything was like, oh my God, just kept going up with all the, the level. All the stars aligned. But, yeah, but yeah, that's my number four album, and and still one of the best today. Nice. Oh, ding, ding. Ding, ding. I got that timing down. Dang, you do. Damn, dude. Five minutes. So my third on my list of five, number three would be uh, Music by 311. Ah, guessed it. And I'll explain. I know that you you might not be a fan of 311. I don't, I don't, you know what? It's not that I'm a, not a fan. I don't really follow them. No, and either. that's the thing. Like, I got into them at an early age. I mean, right when I started playing bass, like 14 years old. Yeah, I know. They're, they're like a, they're like a lifestyle band. They're from right? Omaha, Nebraska. Like a lifestyle band? Kind of. I mean, they're, they're reggae in a way. They're rock. They're metal. They're a little bit of a dance hip-hop um yeah they have a lot of different stuff in their music all sorts of stuff i want to give a big shout out to my friend lily from miami who is a massive 311 fan see she knows and she's gone on their cruises too that they have the cruises the mayor of new orleans back in the day uh don't exactly know what year but he named 311 march 11th 311 day yeah and every year they played a concert there where each year they added songs from the next record, songs from the next record. So progressively, year after year, the concert got longer and longer. And one of them was like a three-hour concert of them playing songs from Music, which was the first album, all the way through Sound System. But if you start with Music, you'd understand that they just evolved as musicians did. And to me, as a bass player, that was the first time I heard a low B, a fifth string. Yeah. Like I had never heard something that low before that my bass that I had bought the four string couldn't do. And I was like, what is that? I'm like, oh my God, it's so low and awesome. I want that. And so I looked at it and said, he's got a fifth string. I want one. So I went and bought a Soundgear five string bass, an SWR, because those cabinets could handle the low B. Like it was down at 33 hertz, which is super low in the frequency yeah. spectrum. But when you listen to their music and you hear these chords, they had this low, like, like in there. And I was like, ah, that's what I want. And so that's why even in From Zero, when we dropped C-Tuned, I kept my low B. 
I would just fret everything. I had always had my finger on the first fret because that was their open note, yeah. but I didn't want to lose my low B. So 311 to me had that introduction. And also they were, um, you know, kind of a, a, a party band in a way, like their songs were all uplifting and there wasn't anything depressing or, or angry about their music. It was all about Unity, which was actually what the band was called before they were 311. Unity? The band was called Unity. I didn't know that. Yeah. And they have a song on the first record that was like very positive, uplifting, and kind of, they got in a way almost put into the same genre category as Rage, but not the heavy side, mm -hmm. because they had some songs that had the rap and the rock and their drummer in particularly... Fantastic drummer, by the way. Ridiculous drummer. I mean, and the sound of his snare is is a signature like mm -hmm. i mean there is the the chad sexton snare i mean it's yeah. it's a snare that they made the piccolo sound with the ping that it has he is ridiculous his fills he's are such a amazing. great groove player yes and that's the thing too is they they record themselves they produce themselves they you know it's all about internals i was at the universal amphitheater in uh, at a k-rock christmas show waiting in line for a beer first time i ever saw slipknot without their masks and tim mahoney the guitar player from 311 is just talking to Corey taylor and they're like you know shooting the shit and i'm like that's the guitar player from 311, like so <laughs> underrated guitar player. Because he is. Everybody thinks of that band as, you know, the the two singers rapping and, you know, yeah. going with harmonies. and But they definitely, to me, as a, as a young musician, influenced me and, and set my tone for what instrument I play. You know, the, the most, one of the most impressive things by them is they have established a killer fan base as well. They can continue oh, yeah. forever. Yes. That's why I'm saying, like, their shows every year in, in New Orleans got you know, longer yep. and longer. So anyway, oh, that's five minutes. Five minutes. Five minutes. Five, we got five minutes. We got five minutes. Number three. This is my number three. It's been hard because these last three records made a huge impact on me. But I want to put the very first Black Sabbath album, um, self-titled. Uh, when I heard the song Black Sabbath, if anybody has heard that song, it's still the scariest intro I've ever heard in a band. And then when it goes into the riff, it looks like it's it looks like they scored that song for a horror movie. I could see that song being in a horror movie. I don't know if anybody's ever used it, but somebody please use this song in a horror movie. And I was like, <laughs> I listened to the record at night. In my room, and I was literally scared to death. It's like, holy shit, this is like the scariest music I've ever heard. But then you listen to the, and when you listen to the song, there's a line that says, uh, Satan sitting and he's smiling. Then he does that left. <laughs> yeah. I was like, oh my God, like I was scared to fucking death. Uh, he did that on the version of Speak of the Devil. That he added that laugh. But when I first heard that line, I was making sure my parents were not around or anything. I didn't want to get in trouble. Because my mom used to listen to whatever I was listening to to mm -hmm. make sure that it was appropriate lyric-wise and all that stuff. Because back then, the PMRC tried to mess up everything. But uh, anyway, actually, no, that was even earlier than that. Well, yeah, what, what year was Way that? Way earlier. This was in 1970? the 70s. Yeah, 1970s, I heard this record. Yeah. but uh, Well, it debuted. It came out in 70, right? I think so, yeah. 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 But, yeah, that's still, like, uh, the scariest intro, and then it went into, like, The Wizard. There's NIB. Like, three staple songs of Black Sabbath. They they probably played on that last tour, the the end tour. NIB still has one of the most amazing bass intros ever. Geezer Butler is, like, one of my favorite bass players. And on that record, he got Bill Ward, who's like one of my favorite drummers. One yeah. of my biggest influences, Bill Ward. And, I liked and, him best in that. And in that and, and a lot of and, I, and my thing that I took a lot from him is I I write a lot of the choruses on the big cymbal, and that's where I heard that from for the first time. It's like that big cymbal drumming. It's like holy crap! It just well, and back then it was mic'd up where you heard the room a lot too. yeah so it really and that record was done it. on a four track and i think <clears throat> in like two or three days yep it's insane that back then a record that was done in that short a time compared to what we do now mm -hmm. production wise where a band can be in a studio for a year well because it was limited based on the time too like they they didn't have the technology to go farther and than the, that. and you knew you needed to know how to play 
Oh yeah, you there needed was, to know how to play. There was no crutch. There was no. There was no editing. Line. There was no pro tools. No there was quantizing. No, click, no quantizing. There was probably a metronome playing, but they would use strobes. Yeah, like they some, would take a strobe light to blink at the tempo of. the Yeah, song. so I mean, it's still you're in and out of that. Oh yeah, but it, it keeps you in a ballpark at least, exactly. you know. Which I thought that's one. I'm, I would love to record just one song like that. I don't have to hear the tuk 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 tuk. Like just go in there with a light, yeah, and just feel it out. You can set a strobe light to be a tempo, and then you just play to that. that I would love to do that at least on one. Song. You have like a red light for one, and then green for two. Yeah, three, I and think four. once I once I lock in, then I, you know, I think I once I feel comfortable, then I definitely can. That's keep actually it, keep a lot it. faster. Uh, you see faster than you hear anyway, so you would yeah. be able to lock better. Mm-hmm. But anyway, uh, yeah, that record is still stand the test of time. I mean, there's not one metal band out there that can't say that Black Sabbath hasn't influenced them in one way or another, either lyrically, drum-wise, bass-wise. Tony Iommi, come on. You know, it's like <laughs> the godfather of all riffs. Yeah. And and I, I really think that anybody has not listened to that record, you really need to listen to it. That's kind of like the blueprint of everything you hear now, you know, it's like, absolutely, you know, like the, some of the solos, like nobody's solos like Tony Iommi. Like, you know, no. I, I don't, I've never heard anybody, they don't try to write riffs. You know, they, they, he's big riff guy. That's where he's like, that's why they call him the godfather of riffs. Right. But his solos had a certain tone plus he had to, because he had those, uh, the, the messed up fingers, messed up tip. He had the these nubs. plastic things on his tips because yeah. he lost the tips of his fingers. And I uh, think he worked in some kind of factory in England, mm-hmm. Birmingham or something like that. And uh, that's why his solos are always so unique, you know, like the uniqueness behind everything. And still, I mean, no other band, like I said, nobody out there can't say that Black Sabbath has not influenced them. And it's still a record that I listen to religiously today. And that's my number three. That's your number three. And Oh, damn, perfect timing. I'll tell you a quick funny thing about Sabbath. Um, <clears throat> I do a lot of these comic uh, recordings like on location for different comedy uh, performances. And there's a comedian named Joey Diaz. Mm-hmm. Um, kind of a foul-mouthed older guy. kind of. But his request was the walk-in music. You know, when people are walking in, he's like, just anything Sabbath. <laughs> that's awesome. And, and he walks out on stage. He's like, what's up, you cocksuckers? You know, like that's his like attitude to people. He's almost wow. like a dice. Like he's a modern-day Andrew Dice Clay. But his whole thing was Sabbath. And so we're doing the show at Zany's Comedy Club. And so it's like people showing up all dressed up nice. And you hear freaking Sabbath playing wow. over the PA. So it's influential to not just musicians. Yeah. You know? So my second album, uh, top debut album, would be, I would say, Mudvayne's LD50. Awesome. Because of um, bass playing on that album. Is no insane. <laughs> yeah, and Ryan, Ryan um, was uh, one of a kind. Inhuman. Yeah, I mean, and and not only inhuman as a player, but inhuman as a stage presence. Still is too. Inhuman as as like for someone who didn't come from that world, who was a jazz bass player and got into this like not only hard heavy band, but with the makeup and the stage show and the acrobatical style of things that they did with jumping and bending overs and all the random freaking craziness that would happen during a Mudvayne show. And that being said, that album being influential right at the time that we got our deal, you know, that album was coming out. And so it was not just a, a, a music fan like I was, but also a, a colleague, a peer, mm-hmm. somebody who we eventually toured together with, you and, yep. and Nonpoint, us with From Zero and, and Mudvayne. Yep. So I, I got to kind of, you know, it's like, not saying meeting your heroes in a way, but getting to like meet a band that you admired and appreciated for their work before you got to work with them mm-hmm. and see them do this on a nightly basis. And I remember watching Soundcheck the first, I think it was like Sunset Station in San Antonio, and they soundchecked without Chad because he would rest his voice, you know, because of the mm-hmm. kind of music they would do every night. There's no way he had to do Soundcheck that way, yeah. you know. But I wanted to quit playing bass after watching him do just a sound check. Like I, it was like, oh my god, this guy is the best player, and these songs have so much aggression, and they brought it every night, yeah. and the fans brought theirs back. Mm-hmm. You know, like, and that was like, you know, you felt it. I'm sure being up there trying to play in front of a bunch of people who just wanted you gone 
They just wanted you off the stage because their faces looked painted the same way Mudvayne was. Mm -hmm. They were into them so much. I mean, I wasn't to that extreme as a fan, but as a musician, appreciating them and that first record. Also, another Garth album. Yeah. So it had another thing in my production side of, you know, man, this guy really knows what he's doing when he's capturing the way that a band is, you know, like, like not... Um, uh, sugarcoating it, not polishing it or smoothing off any rough edges. Mm -hmm. In fact, making the rough edges sharper, you know, making them hit you in a way that like, like hit your soul, not just your ears, not Mm -hmm. just your mind as a musician hearing the parts or as a bass player going, there's no way I could ever play that good. Like, how did this guy get so good? And what the heck am I doing with my life kind of thing? Mm. Because I'm trying to be a bass player in a successful band, but I'm no Ryan. You know, like, and that was, it was insane. that's something that, you know, every musician has that one or, you know, whatever the, the, the people are that make you go, wow, I wish I was that, you know, good, or I could never do like that guy. But it also is a way to kind of make yourself want to get better too, Absolutely. you know, and it did with our band. I mean, we all stepped up our stage presence because of you guys and, and Mudvayne and then had to step up our playing because those guys, not only did they have that stage presence, but they had the accuracy. And usually there's that trade-off when you see a band and it doesn't sound like the album because Mm -hmm. they're jumping around and going crazy and they can't play the same way that they do when they're in here because in the studio world, like they'll sit right next to me on a chair playing perfectly, Mm -hmm. you know, like stop, do it again, stop, do it again. There's all those redos to get it to be as perfect as the, the audience hears it. But in their live show every night in those two weeks that we toured together, it was like, damn, sounded just like it. Damn, every night, you know, it's like, that's something hard to come by. And that's why that album to me is not only a proper representation of the band, but really a, a influential sound that kind of changed the way that albums were done right after that. Yeah. More albums started to sound more aggressive, more raw. And that was a really good time for album production. You know, it was not like it is now where everything is artificially, you know, triggered and polished and, you know, nothing's real. Mm-hmm. And it's all using virtual things, but that was all amps. Like Garth was the organic guy, you know. Yeah. Those drums are real. The room was real. The mixes were real. Like I don't know who mixed it. I think Brendan O'Brien mixed that. Maybe. Maybe I don't know that, yeah. but I have a cool story about the face paint. Yeah. Um, there was that Mudvayne did a meet and greet once, and I and and Greg couldn't make it. They found a fan that was dressed exactly like him. <laughs> he sat in on the meet and greet. <laughs> Because he was acting like Greg. Did he have the bugles? Glued, he glued had to his everything. Face? He was. He had the red. Well, he had the red paint, the the red face, and the the clothes, everything. And he sat at the end and signed in the main meet and greet because Greg couldn't make the meet and greet. I wonder if people knew that. I don't think they did, but and now they do. No, they probably. He was a lot smaller too, so oh, he was like yeah. a kid, a teenager. But I, that that was fun. That was. Really oh my cool. god, that's hilarious. Well, yeah, I mean, if you're wearing a mask, mm-hmm. in a sense, who knows who you are? Oh. And that's our time on that one. Yeah. All right. So uh, on to you, sir. My number two album. What is my number two album? It is Metallica, Kill Em All. That was going to be my number one. But the best memory of this album, it was um, I was living in Puerto Rico. Every Monday night on the local rock station, they had a metal show for an hour. And I think this night was two hours, or maybe it was one. No, it was two hours. They played the entire Metallica album, Kill Em All, and the entire Exciter album, By Lonesome Force, wow. which uh, I went the very next day and bought both those albums. But the Metallica album, the first song I ever heard by Metallica was Hit the Lights. Very first song on their first record, so I listened to Metallica in order, basically. I didn't listen to, like, you know, some people started with the Black Album, some people started with uh, Master, some started with Injustice, and so forth. Depends on when you were in your time. Yeah, yeah. whatever, you know, what age you were, what, you know, what right. age group and whatever. But um Yeah, that and I and I was like so blown away because it sounded like they had a very motorheadish type of vibe, you mm-hmm. know, like in those early records. And uh but they mixed in like this new wave of British heavy metal style with this whole new thing. I can probably say they're probably maybe the first thrash band because they were put into thrash 
uh, category at that time. So I don't know, maybe uh, them well, the and Exodus were Bay the first Area two. Thrash, right? Yeah, yeah maybe yeah. they were like maybe them and Exodus were the first two. I'm not really sure. But that record, like from like hit the lights, like, oh my god! They went to the Four Horsemen, Motor Breath, Jump into Fire, then the Cliff Burton Anesthesia Pulling Teeth bass solo, mm-hmm. and then Whiplash. Um, Phantom Lord, No Remorse, Seek and Destroy, Metal Militia. I mean, you couldn't, like, it was the most perfect metal record at that time. I'd never heard nothing like it. At that time, I was still, like, in, I was listening to Rush, Van Halen. I was getting into heavier stuff, but Metallica was, like, the first heavy, heavy band that I'd ever heard with Exciter on the same day. And then from then on, my, my life changed, like, musically. Like, Metallica got me into thrash. And that record still to this day stands as one of the best debuts. I mean, my absolute favorite album by them is Master, but without Kill 'Em All, I never would have gotten the Master. You know, and, and and the funny thing too is I didn't actually buy it. I kind of stole it from a store. <laughs> kind of swiped it. We five finger discounted it. Yeah, yeah, yeah five finger discounted it, and uh, I got that. And Ride the Lightning was actually out as well when I heard that Kill 'Em All album. Oh, so the both records were out. I swiped both of them. <laughs> but was, but was Kill 'Em All their debut? Kill 'Em All was their first record. Ride the Lightning was the second. But okay. they were both out. But they were playing for some reason. They were playing Kill 'Em All. But I'm kind of happy they did it because yeah. I got to listen to Metallica in order. Like yeah. The next record I heard was Ride the Lightning. Then I heard then, then Master. Master wasn't out. And when that that one came out, forget it. Oh, yeah. Nothing changed. That one definitely. But Kill 'Em All is going to always hold that special spot in my heart for introducing me to a genre that I. Well, into a band that's still. Yeah, killing. I, mean, I saw my soldier feel last year, and they played yeah. songs off that record. So it's been it's been a, a bread and butter of your musical life. Yeah, they played Motor Breath. I was very excited. Then so I they saw hit them. they hit that album even. Yeah, they've got and so seek and destroy. Much. And seek I keep and hearing a lot about the movie they've got out right now, the symphony S&M? thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah it, it came two. out uh, a couple of days ago. I think. Yeah, Glass was talking to me about it on a text, sending me screenshots, and then Reiner Sean went and saw it. I think with is his it dad. good? Yeah, everybody's saying it's really good. Uh, maybe uh, maybe I'll go check it out. Yeah, Metallica still stands the test of time, man. They are timeless. I mean, they sold out fucking Soldier Field. Their sound, their their sound is pioneering. You know, they're they constantly evolve. Like people talk all this negative stuff about them, but they sell out sixty thousand seats. And they take their music into the different worlds, like Symphony and Metallica. I mean, you know, having mm-hmm. songs done classically means those are great songs. You know, like it doesn't matter who you are or what kind of genre you're into. Metallica's they timeless. definitely have explored a lot. They have. I don't think they've. You know. Nothing they haven't covered. No. And it's funny is they could stop at any time, but they choose not to. And they do, I think, to me, Metallica's like the best cover band in the world. Playing them songs. Playing covers. They, they kill them. Oh, um, yeah. Some of my favorite songs of theirs are covers, you know, and I think it's really cool. But, uh, yeah, that, that's my... Uh, that's your number two. That's my number two, man. All right. That's a, that's a really good one. Let's see how your... Oh, oh your clock is done. Oh, so I'm done, done. I'm done. What's number one for you? My number one album would be Drumroll Sarah. Rage Against the Machines first album. Self-titled. Self-titled. Yes. Awesome. Um, and why is that? Why is that? Uh, it was one of the first times I ever went into record store, bought a record, got in my car with the intent on driving back home and just didn't move the entire length of both sides of the cassette. Like I sat in my Ooh, car. Cassette. I know. Sat in ah. my car with the cassette in the car, and you had a cassette player in your car, and, and it auto flipped. You know, Sweet. like flipped over to side two, yeah. and it was done with side one, and still jaw dropped the whole time listening to every song. Like unbelievably produced, sounded like something I had never heard before. Um, you know, it was not only sonically as a you know younger version of me wanting to be an engineer, hearing one of you know the best captures of of raw emotion in a band it sounded like lightning in a bottle you know and that's something all producers talk about trying to get out of the artist is you know that that moment of oh my god that's never been done that way that great before i'm glad i captured it and that seemed like every song on that record was done that way and even though i know all the stories and details now about that like they had recorded a bunch with a click track it didn't work it wasn't feeling right. They took that out of the equation, 
got a bunch of fans in the room the first night, tracked seven tunes that are the exact takes that are on the record. With they, no click. With no click, with a PA system in the room, and them doing a live show, basically. I wonder how that worked bleed-wise. It, it worked. Like, somehow it worked. Garth Richardson did it. Garth had that way with it that, you know, I don't know if it was, you know, magic, or I know there were some other bands that after that had done records like that. I know Incubus did a record that way where they had the drums in the room with the guitar amps facing away from the drums, and everybody played in a room together. And that's something to be said for capturing that take without a click with the raw emotion um the songs the political content the actual uprising that it caused in a lot of you know political and social circles it was a really impressive record for me and as far as you know going into the tracks i mean every song had something i mean you had killing in the name you have mm -hmm. bomb track you have down rodeo it's a fistful, fistful of steel. steels on there but down rodeo's got one of the craziest lyrical lines like cruising down rodeo with my shotgun because people haven't seen a brown skinned man since their grandparents bought one it's like holy wow, crap. i didn't even know that oh yeah and the bass lines like that song particularly had a like really smooth grooving bass line on it there was some real cool like um almost slapping punk kind of pop stuff going on in there and the guitar work of course tom morello mm -hmm. one of uh you know uh, native to this area you know like in libertyville in, he was right. from libertyville he went to libertyville high school that's why he wears that chicago he, he took guitar time. lessons from this place up in highland park illinois called the music gallery and i remember looking in the credits while i was sitting in my car jaw dropped listening to that album seeing them thank frank from the music gallery and frank was the guy that sold me my first bass that's awesome. So I had a, an instant connection in some sense to to that not only Rage album, but to the the backstory of that band. Like, where mm -hmm. did Tom Morello come from? Who was this guy who, you know, was always wearing a Cubs hat, you know, everywhere he went? And his mother would come out on stage at their shows and announce them as the best fucking band in the world. Like, that's Tom's mom. Really? And, yeah. I Every show they played in Chicago, she would come out on stage and introduce them as the best fucking band in the world. That's awesome. And so, you know, you had that, like, all of that combined into one thing is the reason that's my number one. I mean, and there's there's great albums that, you know, I'm, you know, dating myself in a way because that album came out in the early 90s. But that was when I was, you know, just getting into playing this kind of music, too. So I was mm -hmm. influenced by recording and engineering and sonic quality and performance and songs and and having that new metal you know even though rage wasn't really new metal it was kind of a rap metal thing yeah. it really made a, a difference to where i wanted to take my musical career like i wanted to do that i wanted to get a record that sounded that good or songs that were yeah, that it was just an incredible energy positive. the energy on that record is ridiculous That's, and yeah it's like they they were able to almost 100% capture their live show. Exactly. And it translated. And when you see any live footage online, it's all, it, it sounds like the record. I mean, except for more crowd screaming and, you know, yeah. like, like just insane energy. So that's my five minutes. The number one album for you would be, drum roll. Machine Head, Burn My Eyes. That record came out at a perfect time in my life. I honestly thought like metal was kind of almost dead at that time. You know, that was around the 90s. I mean, you still, you had Pantera, Sepultura, and Biohazard. They were carrying, there was really the bands carrying the flag around that time. And I was like, man, it's like, there wasn't that many around to carry that flag. You know, but then that record dropped. And I actually bought it the day um, before it came out, I bought the promotional copy at Uncle Sam's Records nice. in, in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. Sunrise, actually, one of the best record stores. Unfortunately, it's not there anymore, but a killer record store. And I bought it, and I already had heard about the band because um, they were the demos were reviewed, and I used to buy this thing called uh, Metal Maniacs. They had a thing called Firing Squad. And they, they they reviewed the demo. It's a former Violence guitar player, Rob Flynn. I'm like, and I love Violence. I said, okay, I gotta check it out. Then when I heard the intro to Davidian, which is that drum intro, and those guitars came in, I was like, oh my god, what is going on here? Then I kept listening to the song, and it's like, man, it's like they took they took Pantera, Sepultura, and Biohazard, put it in a blender. Put in some industrial bands in there, put some hardcore bands in there, and put some hip-hop bands in there, 
and they blended this album. Mm-hmm. Like, there's all kinds of different tracks on there, you know, and uh, your fast tracks, your really heavy, moody tracks, your groove tracks. And then the ending of Davidian came on. And that's like one of the, to me, it's, I, I put it as amazing as the end of Pantera's Domination. You know, like they had that big riff ending in that, in the Burn My Eyes uh, first song, Davidian, that last riff, just like, holy shit. Mm-hmm. Then old came on. Then a thousand lies, and I was like, "Oh my God, what, 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 what's happening here?" And religiously, I played that album. I don't know, like, <laughs> like five, six times a day around that time. I mean, did you ever got to listen to that record? Oh yeah, when it yeah. came out. Oh yeah, we had. Uh, it's funny, is during the From Zero time we did that. We listened to Machine Head Records and uh, Lamb of God and like a lot of real heavy stuff to try and keep our album as heavy as we could. Yeah. But our producer had other intentions. Yeah, well, they usually do. Yeah, <laughs> but um, yeah, and and now here we are, 2019. They're doing a 25th anniversary tour right now in Europe, which actually Casey Peterson is a drum tech. Oh, Casey is. He's K. He is drum teching for both. Uh, wow. Matt Alston, who is the new drummer in Machine Head, and Chris Contos, who's playing the Burn My Eyes portion. Sure. Yeah. So he's teching this beautiful Yamaha kit. On, on that tour it's like yeah, I'm so excited and they're playing at the Metro in February oh really on Valentine's Day I think it is nice and I'm definitely gonna and it's on a Saturday excellent I'm going <laughs> I'm, I'm, yeah I mean no, no. you can't you wanna, go you gotta go home you could park your car here and ride the train I could it's two stops and you're at the Metro because I don't want to park down there no you don't you pay like $35 <laughs> to freaking park around yeah there. but um yeah, I'm excited uh, to see that tour and to listen to my favorite album live. You know, and are they playing it front to back like a? Yep, yeah, front yeah, to back. I and love then, when uh, bands do that. Uh, Chris Contos was like one of the most creative drummers at that time. I'd not heard drums like that, and I think in part he came from a band called Attitude Adjustment. It was more like a hardcore type mm-hmm. thing. But man, the the drums and now the funny thing is, as they're doing this fucking tour. He hasn't played drums in five years, let alone, and he hadn't played those songs in 25 years. Right. But when I saw the video, the first one they dropped oh, yeah. the video, it, and he was, was like, right on. like, like time had like, like it was yesterday. He had stopped playing drums. And that opening fill is ridiculous. Yeah, and still to this day, I just can't get it right. <laughs> and uh, but well, I'm, yeah, I'm definitely too. excited to see Logan too, and. His uh, guitar work on that record is ridiculous, and mm-hmm. and that that's definitely my number one. That's your number one. Who uh, who engineered or produced that record? Do you know? I think Colin Richardson. Oh yeah, Colin, yeah, Colin Richardson. Colin, yeah, he was big back then, and especially for that kind of music. Yeah, he's done a couple Machine Head records yep. too. Yep. All right. Well, then you got three, two, one, and Rob is done. Are you going to leave that on there? What, the things? Oh, yeah. Yeah, because yeah, it's real time. Yeah. We want to thank all of you for listening to the Robcast podcast. Be sure and subscribe to get notified on all future episodes. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Robcast Podcast. And feel free to send us any comments, suggestions, guest ideas, topics, whatever, at robcastpodcast at gmail.com. That is R-O-B-B-C-A-S-T-P-O-D-C-A-S-T at gmail.com. Remember that the Rob has two Bs. Enjoy your day.